This is Tech Refactor. I'm your host, Gus Hurwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center at the University of Nebraska. Today, we're joined by Dr. Benita Sharif, an expert in the use of eye tracking technologies to enhance the efficiency of software programmers in searching through thousands of lines of code. Benita received her PhD in computer science from Kent State University and has since joined the Department of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Nebraska. Benita, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here, Gus. Can we just start with you telling us a bit about uh, your current position at the university and your research? Absolutely. I came here in 2018. I am now associate professor in the newly formed School of Computing Right, let's not forget that. Uh, I direct the Software Engineering Research and Empirical Studies Lab here in the school. Um, my research works is mainly uh, situated at the intersection of software engineering and human-computer interaction. This is neat because I'm interested in understanding how software developers work. And um, one aspect of it is the interaction they have with the system as well as other people. So software engineering is a um, subfield in computer science, which is mainly focused on building systems all the way starting from requirements to when we deploy it and maintaining the system over time. So you mentioned a couple of things there, software engineering as a subfield of computer science, and also you uh, noted, as I should have noted in our introduction, that here at UNL, the Department of Computer Science and Engineering has recently been reorganized into a school of computing. Software engineering has the word engineering in it, and computer engineering has often been how the field of computer science, or part of the field of computer science, has been conceptualized. Is software engineering, uh, this is going to be a, a hard question, I expect. I'm not going to go anywhere good with this. Is, is software engineering an engineering field, a computer science? What What is so software engineering? Yes, definitely. Software engineering is an engineering discipline. Now, there are people out there that will fight you on this, okay? But it is engineering because now if you do, okay, let me rephrase that. If you do software correctly in the correct way, it is an engineering discipline. The problem is most people don't. And this is why we have software in the state it is today. The reason why it is engineering, there's a disciplined way of going about building software. There is a method to this, right? We, we document things as we go. And if you do it correctly, now again, most people don't do that. Most developers don't document. If you see 90% of the cases, they don't do that. But if your firm does not do that, I would say either evangelize, convince them to do it, or leave and join another firm that does that. It's so uh, yes, it's definitely engineering. There's a it's it's software. It, you can't compare it with building bridges, right? You can actually see a bridge. You cannot really see software, and that's what makes it hard to to actually see what's what's working and the intricate details that happen with the different systems that are uh, integrated with each other to just build something that you see on a phone. That's all you see as a user, right? The, the, the interface. There's so much more behind the scenes. A good yeah. example of this is Google, right? There's so much uh, complexity in, in the search, but all we see is a text box. Yeah, so at some level, the, the engineering component of software engineering is even more important from the discipline and actually 
building this stuff perspective than it is with physical things like bridges because no one can see and it's it's easier to take shortcuts and harder to understand intuitively so you you need to be a more rigorous engineer and approach these problems from an engineering perspective Yes, 100%. And this is why, because of this invisible nature of it, we need to, and we follow this process in our, both in my lab, as well as in the software engineering degree program here we have at the school. Uh, we make sure we document everything. The workflows are in place, because if we don't have that, we cannot possibly remember everything, every little detail. So everything needs to be documented. So you uh, had started also by saying your work is at the intersection of software engineering and HCI or human computer uh, interaction. Can you tell us a bit more about uh, HCI? I'm interested in understanding what, for instance, I'll give you one example. I'm interested in understanding how, let's say, a expert developer is different from a novice developer. And in order to do this, we use certain objective methods such as, you know, uh, biometric methods, such as one of them is eye tracking. And we place these, uh, we, we place these objects in, uh, in a way such that we can track what they're looking at. And this, this interaction is useful to understand how, let's say, developers fix bugs. Now we could do that without that, without the interact, the uh, eye tracking, right? But we would not possibly know, we, we would get the end result, how they fixed it, but we wouldn't know what they did in the process. And that interaction, I think, is super important to understand how we can help a novice, let's say, improve and become an expert eventually uh, faster. So I, I love that. Your work is kind of meta in computer engineering and software engineering because you're using computer science research to figure out how to improve the state of software engineering. Um, yes. which is itself a software and computer engineering discipline. That, that's a perfectly meta in the traditional meaning of the word, not the new Facebook branded version of the word. You hit the nail on the head there. Yes. Uh, so how did you come to uh, focus on eye tracking? Oh, this is by complete accident. I was a grad student back at Kent State University. I was working in a completely different area, software traceability, again, in software engineering. My advisor asked me to check out this eye tracker we had in the library. This was a, not as good as the trackers I have now, but it was something that we had there. And he suggested, you know, you can replicate the study, possibly think about replicating the study, and I was like, why is he asking me this? I'm not sure. So I went there, you know, as a grad student, you do what your advisor tells you to. I have a great advisor, by the way. So I went there and I checked out the, the place. And, and since it was not my tracker, like I had to kind of get, get time to use it. It was in the library. I replicated a study. Again, this was just for fun point this out. Uh, I had no idea that I would be at this position actually doing this for a living right now. So I went to the library, set up this uh, experiment. And the, the goal of the study was to understand what's better in terms of identifier style, camel case or underscore. Okay, so the study was purely to see which, which one's better, which one takes longer to read. And that's what I did. Uh, Fast forward 10 years, this is actually my most cited paper now, and quite controversial, actually. So I have to ask, uh, what, where's the controversy? How's it controversial? 
So identifier styles, these are like religion for some developers. They stick with, you know, I only use one or I only use the other. I say this because there was a Reddit post about this paper, actually, uh, a while back. I can find it. It's still there where people were basically arguing with, with, with each other about the results of this study. One half was towards camel case and the other half was towards underscore. And they were just fighting with each other about why one is better than the other, uh, using this paper as either evidence or saying that, you know, oh, it doesn't matter. Like you can pick your side, right? It was funny to, actually not funny, quite intriguing for me as an author of that paper to read these things. So there was quite a controversy stirred up on that. Can you just explain uh, for listeners, we're talking about in computer coding, when you're writing computer code, what names you give to things like variables and functions, and there are different ways of doing this. I, I guess I'm about to explain this and I, I shouldn't, I should ask you to. Okay, can you explain what the difference between camel case and underscore is and what, why it matters? Absolutely. So take a compound word, for example, take the word total cost. Okay, when you write that in camel case, you would basically spell it out as T-O-T-A-L, all lowercase. You would capitalize the C and then have lowercase O-S-T with only C capitalized. If you write the same compound word in underscore, it would be total underscore cost, everything lowercase. Now, there are some issues with readability with both those things, right? Uh, and some people prefer one or the other. And th this is actually bringing us, in a sense, to the human-computer uh, interface sort of idea. The, the reason this all matters is for computers, when a computer is reading through and uh, uh, processing computer code, a space will break things up. So if you want to have a variable that is meaningful, the total cost of whatever function that you're doing, the, the total cost uh, of items in a shopping cart, you can't have it be total space cost. You need to have it all just be no spaces. So how do humans interface with the way that computers are going to be reading the variable name there? Is, is that basically a nice dovetail between the topics? Yes. I, I, I love the story that you tell. Uh, your, your advisor suggested, why don't you go do this uh, a project? And it took you down this path True. I think this is what academics in many ways should be. It's really hard to know when you're a, a grad student or even when you're a, a professor at any point, what direction uh, your career is going to go because let the research take you in interesting places. If it's interesting to you, it's probably interesting to others if you can do uh, tractable work around the topic. So can you tell us a bit more about what eye tracking is and how this research works? Yes, yeah, so the eye tracker itself is quite simple. It is a hardware device with a light source and some cameras, sometimes one or two cameras, uh, one or two light sources. It, and it basically tracks your eyes and tells you a point in space where you're looking. Let's call that point, it has an XY coordinate, let's say. And it determines this by shining those uh, light, that light source towards your eyes, determining where your pupil is, and then looking at where the corneal reflections are, just a fancy word for glint that you see on your eyes. And then um, it basically uses straightforward geometry to determine the XY coordinate on the screen. And then that's, that coordinate or that point 
rather tells you what you're looking at. That's pretty much what the eye tracker gives you. It doesn't tell you what that point maps to. That is the next step in post-processing that you need to figure that out later. But the tracker itself just gives you this point in space that you're looking at. So that, that's uh, really cool. So the, you're basically using cameras to look at the eyes and you're taking what's reflecting off the eyes. It's not uh, the camera isn't scanning what you're looking at or it isn't on the screen saying, oh, you're looking at this point on the screen. It, it's This is applied trigonometry. <laughs> you can think of it like that because uh, it, it all it depends on what you want to do with that point later on, right? You can write your own software to do what you want with it, but the tracker itself really doesn't give you anything more than the point. So what, what are you using eye tracking to do and uh, what, what sort of research are you doing with it right now? So right now we are using eye tracking to understand how software developers fix bugs, uh, how they summarize code, how they basically navigate to understand code, because we want to determine, my goal eventually is to come up with these theories. I don't have a theory right now because we don't have enough data to distinguish, let's say, novices from experts, but I would, or even how novices learn over time. But the more data we collect, the, the better we can build these theories to understand how developers truly understand code. How do they fix bugs? How do they go about? What's their thought process in doing so? And that I think is extremely intriguing to me. So we, we could think of this and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, to put uh, a metaphor on this, this is like reading a recipe. So you could, you could have an experienced cook, uh, you could have a novice cook, you give them a, a recipe and you want to know how do they read this? Where do they get confused? Do they understand uh, uh, one lowercase t versus one uppercase t as teaspoon versus tablespoon? Or should you spell out teaspoon or tablespoon? Um, is it more useful to have all the ingredients listed as a block up at the top? Or do you list them uh, the first time that they're used in the recipe? Uh, so you give novice cooks uh, and uh, experienced cooks the same recipe and you literally watch their eyes as they're reading this and figure out, okay, where are they getting confused? Where are they making mistakes? Where are they trying to figure out uh, what I'm supposed to be doing while the chicken is burning on the, uh, in the oven? Um, is that kind of what you're doing? Uh, yes, I'll give you another analogy. I just uh, thought of another one. So think about how people, I play the piano myself and um, think about how people play the piano, right? Um, a, a novice versus an expert. So what they found out when they use eye tracking while people are playing, they notice that the experts tend to do a look ahead. So they look ahead few notes before they actually play it. That tells, the, tells us that they are actually using different strategies. Another concept is they don't look at their hands as much, whereas the novices don't look ahead and they always look up and down at the notes and their hands. So this tells us that we need to figure out a way to help the novices learn this look ahead skill. The same with code the, and the same with the recipe idea too. It's yes, how do we learn from these, these uh, sticking points that are making the novices, let's say, take longer in, in doing a task. And this is not just for novices, it could be also for experts that are exposed to an unfamiliar task. So what does eye tracking add to our understanding of how to 
improve learning, how to improve code readability, coding, software engineering generally, or I guess just more generally, what, what are the main contributions and advancements that this work uh, is leading to? Yes, the biggest thing, I see it as a glass box, right? You can actually understand and see the thought processes of someone as they are doing the task versus after the fact. There are two things that, uh, that occur when you ask somebody what they did after the fact without actually tracking what they did while they are doing it. One, they either misreport what they did or think they did. And two, they, they might just forget what they did while they're doing the task. Right. And I know this because we actually play back gaze behavior to uh, our, our study subjects and they tell, tell us things like, I had no idea I was looking at this thing at this point. I'm not sure why I was looking there, but they were. Right. So this can help us uncover a lot of issues in, in design, in the way the code is built, as well as other usability issues in actually using the code. Both developers as well as users can, can be impacted with, with this research. So we are talking with uh, Benita Sharif at the University of Nebraska um, about her research into eye tracking and software engineering. We will be back in a couple of moments to continue our discussion. I'm Morgan Armstrong, a student fellow at the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center and part of the Space Cyber and Telecommunications Law Program at the University of Nebraska. Did you know the University of Nebraska College of Law also has a space, cyber, and telecommunications law program that started in 2008. The program features tracks for law students and advanced degrees for established attorneys. Interested in satellites, international law, radio spectrum, or just about anything in the great expanse of space? Check them out on Twitter at Space Cyber Law. Now back to this episode of Tech Refactored. We are coming back now for some more discussion about eye tracking, software engineering, and possibly uh, what it's like to gaze through the windows into someone's soul. So, uh, Benita, I'm going to start on that last uh, point. The way that you were just describing this, uh, the, the work that you're doing, it, it sounds really powerful, really being able to look into and study someone's thought processes as they're playing the piano, cooking a recipe, reading a book or a, some text or something like that. What I'll, I'll just let you respond to that. That just seems really powerful to me that you can actually kind of peer into individual thought processes in real time. Yes, so let me start that by uh, telling you about an actual pain that I had when I, when I first started in tracking and why and how I resolved it. So when I um, first started eye tracking, my goal as a software engineer was to study developers. But when I looked at the software available, I couldn't find anything that let me conduct a study in a way that, that was realistic enough. So all the state-of-the-art systems out there would just let me show a picture or a snippet of code that fit on the screen without interacting it with it, without moving it. And this was fine to study small code snippets, but you cannot realistically take those results and extrapolate them to real software that impacts real production software that people develop in the field. And this was an issue I had and, and I, there was nothing out there. So I decided to build my own. And we call it now, it's the community infrastructure. It's called iTrace, i-trace.org. You can look it up on the website. We are just uh, 
coming up for a final release of this in January. It is fully functional. It actually works. It is used by several of software engineering researchers in our community, and we are constantly getting um, requests to update it. So let me explain what's unique about it. So if you remember before, I said the tracker just gives you the XY coordinate that you look at on the screen. Now, it'll do that so long as the screen does not change. But as developers, we don't work with 10 lines of code. We work with many, many, many thousands of lines of code, and we switch between files. You know, we search the web. We, we look at Stack Overflow, right? Who doesn't? So I wanted to support all of these different use cases, and this is why I created iTrace along with my team. It lets you implicitly collect all of this data behind the scenes while the developer works. And so it completely revolutionizes the way you conduct eye tracking studies in software engineering because it is very, very, very realistic. Just like you couldn't get more realistic than that. This is how software is built in industry. And we are basically tracking it in that way. So basically, if I were to be reading something and thoughtfully look up at the ceiling for a couple of minutes uh, and ponder what I was thinking, you'd be able to track that as a thing that I was doing. Whereas uh, uh, previous generations, uh, I would have to be looking at a static code snippet or something that uh, whomever was doing the study had wanted me to study. And that, that's just a completely artificial uh, way to actually uh, uh, work. Actually, not quite. Let me uh, rephrase that. So uh, both systems would actually let you see what you, if you looked off of the screen. What, how ours is different is that with iTrace, you can actually switch between files. So let's say you was looking at one file and then you wanted to reference another file that this file was referencing. So you, you can click another file and then our system seamlessly detects that you switched files. You can open up a web browser and look at Stack Overflow. It will seamlessly switch to that and tell you, oh, you looked at this comment in Stack Overflow or this particular code snippet in a bug report. Previous state-of-the-art systems, actually right now, the ones that exist in the market also do not let you do that. It has to be fixed on the screen. So what's the uh, level of granularity that you're able to detect eye movements at? I I've seen previous uh, technologies that can kind of say, you're looking at the upper right corner of the screen or in the middle of the screen that's that have been used, for instance, for uh, web page design. How do how do uh, users tend to scan their eyes across the page? And that's pretty coarse. It sounds like you're able to do uh, much finer grained positioning on the screen. Yes, so we typically look at the word level. Uh, we can look at the character level, but that's not really useful to us. So we look at the word level, uh, definitely the line level. Sometimes we chunk things together, but yeah, we can go up until up to the word level. And, and it also depends on the accuracy and the quality of the tracker, right? So you want to use a tracker that is a good quality, that has a higher speed, so you don't miss too many things in between. So there are a lot of factors there as well. I... Putting on my lawyer and technology regulation hat, I have to ask, do you have any concerns about the technology or how it might be used and how does that affect how you've approached this work? Yes, there are privacy concerns, but 
there are ways to get around it. So for instance, if you're not tracking the eye itself and just the data that's coming out of it, and then for also not tracking what they're looking at. So for instance, if you were a company, a software company, and you wanted to give all your developers an eye tracker, maybe then there has to be some policy in place or your some trust or some kind of system in place that your developers feel you know, comfortable in letting you use this to track them. For instance, when I work, I certainly do not code, you know, for hours at a time. I have 20 minute increments. And even within those 20 minutes, I don't always just look at code. I might go off on a tangent, look at a website maybe. Now, if that happens, instead of recording what the website is, you can just say, oh, this was off task rather than saying what it was. So there are ways that we can protect privacy by just not recording certain things that we don't need to record. And in terms of the physical setup of this equipment, this isn't the sort of thing that evil corporation XYZ could just enable on someone's laptop, make sure this person has read this term of service. This is actual, you have a, a lab and you need to be in a facility that's using this equipment. So uh, it couldn't be surreptitiously used. Well, right now there is a push to use webcams as trackers. Let me tell you that they do not work well. And some of these results scare me because they are making conclusions that are simply not accurate. We have actually done a test in the lab to compare webcams used as eye trackers with an actual tracker. And there was 5% 5% overlap. We haven't published this yet. We're planning to eventually, but a webcam is no substitute for a tracker. So, you know, I would be very, very uncomfortable with if somebody used a webcam and said, oh, you didn't look at this, which they could do, but we need to be careful about that. So uh, for those listening at home, you would not have just seen my facial response uh, when Benita mentioned that. It was a, a wow, surprise, I'm shocked that it's only 5% overlap. Uh, that That's really scary. And uh, yeah, I, I'm sure that we're starting to see, I might say I'm sure, I know that we are starting to see these technologies in the wild and companies trying to uh, really promise these capabilities. So please get that paper published. That's uh, really important work. What what do you, is there anything that you wish people uh, understood about this technology? Yes, I definitely want to point out that it's a lot of fun to use, but it does take a lot of time and effort to actually not just conduct AI tracking study, but also to design it. We spend about nearly about half a year, six, four to six months, you know, designing, piloting, making sure the study is correct, the tasks are appropriate. It's not plug and play like the vendors make it out to be. Okay, so it's, yes, you can plug and play it, but then what next, right? You have to have some functional use case to using it. And also think about the realistic setting when you are conducting studies. Like who is your end user? Who are you studying? If you, you know, want to study, let's say, Java developers, then don't focus on people who don't know Java, right? It completely throws off your your results. So just be mindful about these things. And then not everything needs eye tracking. I do a lot of stuff that does not involve eye tracking. There has to be a reason why you want to use it. What about for those uh, who do want to use it? You mentioned iTrace and uh, that this is a community infrastructure. What sort of researchers might be interested in using this? Um, what 
capabilities, capacities do they uh, need to have to do so? And um, I, again, I'm thinking uh, my own legal research, most legal academics probably don't have the capabilities to implement iTrace. What if there was someone who wanted to understand uh, how users read terms of service on a website and the legal enforceability that we should or shouldn't give to certain terms? What, what advice would you give them if they wanted to start working uh, uh, with these sort of tools? Yes, so iTrace started with software development in mind, but it's actually very uh, useful to other uh, disciplines as well. And let me explain. So iTrace is community eye tracking infrastructure, uh, but it is set up in a way that it's very modular. So we have a core system, and then we also have these plugins that connect to it. So we have one of them is the iTrace Chrome plugin. So it basically enables eye tracking within Chrome, which is a web browser. Now you can, and because of this, you can have, let's say, uh, you know, terms of service open and you can have people read it and see whether they truly understand what terms of service are, or you could have legal documents in the browser and, and then record at the word level to see what they're reading. You can detect reading speed, for instance, you know, what they skip, regressions, things like that. So that could also help you to better write the documents, right? There are so many other possibilities. And then other things such as Excel, think of Excel, right? We could write a plugin. iTrace is set up in a way that you can write multiple plugins. So someone could write a plugin for Excel that detects how people work with formulas or, or code within Excel. That's an option. We also support Visual Studio, which is a, a development environment for developers. And then we also support Eclipse and Atom. So we support quite a few now, and then it's extensible. If you go to our website, you can learn more about how you can extend it. So we definitely want people to use our core and extend it. What's on the horizon? When your eye, if we were to track your eyes and your gaze is looking out to the future, um, what, what do you see both with your own research and the direction that this technology generally is going? If you look at the market and where people are investing things, you will see that a lot of money is being put into the eye tracking field. Apple, Facebook, they are all looking for that killer application. We don't have that yet. We need a killer consumer application to have eye tracking take off, right? We don't have that yet. So I see, but I predict 10 years from now, every laptop will have an eye tracker maybe not 10, maybe 10, 15 years from now, but it will eventually happen. And when that happens, how are we going to use it, right? I know how I would like to use it to help me understand my workflow as a developer. It, being self-aware of how you work just helps you, helps you with your productivity, helps you just plan your time, even makes you learn things about how you, let's say, go about trying to fix bugs, for instance. This is a a learned skill, right? Even for yourself. Uh, and then it can help others as well. For instance, you can show these, these patterns to people who are onboarded on your project. For instance, it can reduce the time for people that come in to your system. I mean, imagine a system where you could actually show people the eye gaze of how you would, let's say, navigate this project instead of having the person right there. It will also enable a lot of other things to be reused in the system. So, uh, we're not there yet, but I think, you know, we have to resolve some things around there. There's some policy issues that need to be resolved with ethics and privacy, but I think there's a way to get around that if we 
collect only what we need and not necessarily everything we can. And I, I just have to put a, a shout out in there. Uh, one, of, one of the great things about uh, Benita that I'm happy about is that she's one of our fellows at the Governance and Technology Center uh, here at the university where we think about and talk about uh, these ethics, tech ethics, privacy regulation sort of concerns, because I expect many listeners are just imagining all the scary, well, my employer is going to be able to manage every single thing that I, I do. Facebook is going to know what posts I'm not just clicking on, but looking at concerns there. It's uh, important and uh, good to know that uh, these are things uh, that are in the discussion now. And I got to say, I have my own dream application for this technology, which is incredibly simple. I have too many monitors connected to my main computer at home, and I would love it if I could just, I, I often lose track of the, my mouse pointer on the screens. I would love it if I could just push a button and have the mouse pointer appear wherever I'm looking. So I'll, I'll put in my plug for that as a, a future application. Oh, that's, um, that's easy to do, Gus. We'll do that for you. No problem. Okay. Well, that, that's what I'd like to hear. Any last thoughts that you want to uh, leave listeners with? Yes. I want to say that eye tracking is such a powerful technology, but at the same time, it can be misused. So um, use it correctly and it will give you these unique insights as to you know, how people work. And hopefully in the correct hands, it can have a lot of impact and improving technology and just in general life and software that helps us live a good life, I guess. Okay, well, thank you, uh, Benita, for this discussion. Really fascinating work. And I, I'm just, uh, I what one of the things uh, uh, I know I have colleagues who are interested and excited about uh, collaborating with you on some research. Uh, so look forward to continuing the discussion. So thank you. And thank you to our listeners. I've been your host, Gus Hurwitz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Tech Refactored. If you want to learn more about what we're doing here at the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center or submit an idea for a future episode, you can go to our website at ngtc.unl.edu or you can follow us on Twitter at UNL underscore NGTC. If you enjoyed this show, please don't forget to leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our show is produced by Elspeth Magilton and Lysandra Marquez, and Colin McCarthy created and recorded our theme music. This podcast is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series. Until next time, keep your eye on the ball.